What does it mean to connect to your future at Lake Michigan College? They connect you to your future opportunities. They partner with local industries and employers, ensuring their programs align to the needs of the community's workforce. Lake Michigan College can help you get to the future you want. Visit lakemichigancollege.edu. Good morning. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. This morning's guest on With Respect is Anne Fortier. Anne is a writer. She's written a great book called Juliet. Romeo and Juliet lives in the 21st century. Anne Fortier, With Respect. We'll be right back. Anna, how are you this morning? Very well, John. How are good, you? Good, good. Before we got into this, you were talking about you you, you had a horrible breakfast today. <laughs> I, yes, I'm sorry about that, but uh, I really did. <laughs> I mean, as I was saying, I mean, I can't, I, I, I should learn to pick up people's cues. When people look at you in a weird way when you're walking out of their deli, it means, don't you want that heated up for you, ma'am? <laughs> No, I've been in those places. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Ordinarily, I do it when I'm in a place where I don't understand the language. Yes. And, and, and I've been in places where people are very polite and they say, ah, American, very silly man. If he wants to, <laughs> if he wants to have that raw, it's just great. Exactly. <laughs> the old frozen slices sausage. <laughs> Go ahead and make my day. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I've been there and done that. But the problem is when you when you've been there and done that, your stomach is not the same for quite a while. It isn't. No, it isn't. And I can't believe that even now, so many years after my first the trip to the United States, my first stint in Oklahoma, uh, where I lived, I, I still make these mistakes. Where it's, where in Oklahoma? In Norman, actually. I'll be darned. OU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, do you have? I I went to school in southwestern Missouri, right across the border near Joplin, oh, Missouri. Really? We had a lot of uh, guys in our school from uh, various parts of, of Oklahoma. My brother went down to uh, – did his uh, AIT for the Army down in um, – not Norman, but uh, Fort Sill. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So he has great stories about Oklahoma. I have some great stories about southwestern Michigan and Oklahoma. Dated a woman <laughs> from Tulsa, yeah, and uh-huh. she was – Lovely. Uh, but at any rate, 
Uh, so, yes, I'm familiar with Oklahoma, but you're not originally from Oklahoma. No, no, no. That's I, not an Oklahoma accent. No, I, I th- <laughs> although when I was in Oklahoma, someone in Oklahoma said, you have an accent. You're from, you're from Austin, Texas, aren't you? <laughs> Which I thought was just so wonderful. I thought, yes, I've, I've really made it. Uh, but no, 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 I'm from Denmark. I was born in Denmark, mm-hmm. country of the Little Mermaid and Hans Christian Andersen. Yes, and, all and that. Peter Hig. And Definitely, yeah. Søren Kierkegaard. Søren Kierkegaard. Karen Blixen. And uh, Karen Blixen, Isaac Dennison. Yes, Absolutely. oh yes, on and on. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. good. Um, before we start, I talked about a number of friends that I had who live in, um, in or lived in uh, Denmark, Copenhagen, uh, and Greenland. And I have been fascinated uh, on my one tour of Copenhagen uh, and of Denmark. I went out to, it was not Elsinore, it was another castle, um, castle palace uh, a, a bit outside of Copenhagen. Very mm-hmm. famous. It's on all the tourist books. Yes, yes. I'm having a it's not Kronborg? Kronenberg. Oh, it is yes, Kronenberg. Yes, okay, it is Hamlet's, Kronenberg. Hamlet's Castle. Yes, yes. yes. The ghosts <laughs> and the... And oh. I hiked around and it was it's wonderful. wonderful. I saw. I, did you know that I met the ghost? Did you? I did. Oh, dear. I did. He was, we had a no, nice long talk. Wow. And he said, Hamlet, Hamlet. I tried to tell him, don't do this. This is not smart. Exactly. <laughs> he wouldn't listen. Wouldn't but listen. you know, kids, That's those it. kids will not listen. That's it. Anyway, so where in Denmark are you from? Copenhagen? Well, uh, most people assume I'm from Copenhagen because I guess that's you know, you look well, your at accent betrays you. It's a Copenhagen accent, well, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I don't know. I mean, um, I am actually from the exact opposite part of Denmark. Mm-hmm. I'm from the the the, the west coast, mm-hmm. the the sort of blustery, windswept mm. stretches of, of 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 North Sea coast, um, mm-hmm. which uh, which is quite a different place, I'll tell you. And those those who who know of the Irish. West Coast and, mm-hmm. and and the Scottish Isles will have an idea of what we're talking about here. Is you know, I, I'm half Irish, and so uh, now my people are from Cavan, which is not quite on the West Coast, but um, some of them, I guess some of them might have drifted out there. So I have some uh, feel for the West Coast of Ireland and the West Coast of Scotland. I've traveled there. That produces a certain kind of thinking, which is different than, say, urban Edinburgh or or Dublin or London. I think it does very much, and and I think that that um, it's very much when you're out there. Uh, it's you, it's it's the elements, it's it's you know, it's you and and fate and it's survival. And I I, I know that might sound sort of a little bit. Um, little theatrical maybe but quite frankly you know sometimes when I look at people who grew up in the city versus people who grew up where I grew up amongst fishermen and people who well each year someone would die on the ocean mm-hmm. right we, we I grew up with this with this sort of saying only a fool does not fear the ocean mm-hmm. uh, and and that's and so it, you have a completely different respect for nature I think when mm-hmm. you grow up uh, under those circumstances really you know, it's interesting. I had an uncle who was a uh, in the Merchant Marine during the Second World War and before and after. Um, he was on the Murmansk run during the Second World War, Ooh. running into um, 
the um, what post what Russian port was it? Um, not not Leningrad. I can't remember the think of the the, the port there, but um, Murmansk. Yeah, the and, Murmansk. I mean, yeah. it's close to this Finnish port of Petsamo. Yeah. With all the mines that they were, you know, the Murmansk railroad going down to Saint Petersburg. Mm-hmm. Well, he uh, was on that run, survived it uh, during the war, then came back to the to the Midwest, which is where he was from originally, and began to captain some boats on the Great Lakes. And we used to love to listen to his stories about sailing on the Atlantic and the Great Lakes. And one of the things that he uh, said is that it's much more difficult to sail on the Great Lakes than it is in the Atlantic Ocean. Really? And and I said, well, that's crazy. You have these huge (laughs) waves and great storms. He said, here's the difference. In in Lake Superior, for example, or Lake Michigan, you can have a storm pop up much faster, number one. Number two, the waves come at you from different directions. They can become very large. Um, And number three, there's no sea room to to navigate. Because they're so short, they're so uh, so narrow and small bodies of water. Whereas in the Atlantic, you can at least go into the wind, so to speak, um, and uh, and fight the waves, as opposed to having them hit you from the side. So, but but he said the exact same thing that you just said. Fear, it, it, healthy fear, is very healthy. <laughs> Absolutely, a respect for nature, and um, in your book which is Juliet. I, I've read it. It's an excellent, very interesting read. Um, in our station, I cannot say go out and buy it because uh, <laughs> we're a public station. I can say, however, that I really enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, I think others, listeners of mine would uh, enjoy it as well. And we're going to talk about that in a bit. But, but first, um, I want to f- come back to you're being raised in the, the windswept western shore of Denmark. Because we all assume, I think many people assume that uh, Copenhagen is all there is of Denmark, number one, and that, well, if it isn't, the country is small enough that it probably just is all one big city. But it's not. And well, a different culture out there. Absolutely. And and I think that, sadly, I think that most Copenhageners probably think that Copenhagen also <laughs> is Denmark. We have the same problem with New Yorkers. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, there are people who never leave Copenhagen. Yeah. Uh, and there are certainly people who live out where I grew up who never go to Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. Not because they couldn't, because really it's only a four-hour drive. But they wouldn't. Why mm. would they? You know, it's sort of, it's the big Babylon in oh. there, right? It's something you watch on the television news, and mm. there's always some trouble in Copenhagen. So you wouldn't certainly wouldn't go there. You'd rather fly to, you know, Spain. Well, there is a, of late, we have had a spate of writers that become popular here in the United States um, who have um, their roots in Scandinavia. Uh, we have Peter Hoog from uh, from Denmark. Uh, wrote Smilla's Sense of Snow, or we call it uh, Smilla's Amazing Sense of Snow, I think is the name. They have <laughs> yes. another title in England. but um, And um, The Quiet Girl was another of his books. But we also have um, uh, Joe Nesbo out of Norway writing detective stories. And help me with uh, Stieg Larsen. Stieg Larsen, there you <laughs> I go. I knew you were going to yeah. say that. <laughs> but these are, these are sort of, they, they have brought to the American conscience, consciousness, 
um, an image was always lurking in the back of our minds about Scandinavia. Those of us who had not been there uh, think of it as uh, ethereal, sort of an ethereal place, maybe because we just haven't seen it. Um, But you're bringing something interesting to the table, which is there is a comparison that you can make between the urban and and, and, uh, rural cultures that are completely different, at odds with one another, in this ethereal place. Well, I yes, and 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 um, I I have to say that sometimes I'm a little bit worried about the way uh, Americans um, encounter Scandinavian literature. Someone like Stieg Larsson, and I know that certainly the Swedes now are very famous for all their detectives mm-hmm. novels. And I I sometimes fear that people in North America get the impression that. All all Scandinavians are sort of uh, depressed men with with a Scotch bottle in their in their drawer, you know. And Touche. Yeah, and and how howsoever wonderful that might be, you know, in terms of a detective story. Um, I I just I, I I suppose I'm trying to bring uh, Scandinavian literature, you know, the export version of Scandinavian mm-hmm. literature, back to to sort of the Karen Blixen era, mm-hmm. the era of great adventure, the era of there's more between. Between heaven and earth, uh, mm. than there's in your bottle, mm-hmm. and uh, and um, and I I I I don't know I can I can I can rec- I can recommend the the Gothic tales right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's an old book, and Karen Blixen very nearly got the Nobel Prize for it. Uh, she was nominated for the seven Gothic tales. But, I did not know that. But unfortunately, well, unfortunately, in in every respect, Hemingway was also nominated that year, and they they knew he was dying. So they rushed oh. the Nobel Prize to him. Unfortunately, she died too. So she oh. never got it. But the, if you if you really want to go to Scandinavia, most yeah, Scandinavia, and get that magic, the real magic of the Scandinavian countryside, and sort of the historical aspect, and go back to you know the age of enlightenment, and 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 and, and, and work with ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you 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 do well to read the, the Gothic tales by Isaac. I guess her her, her pen name was Isaac Dinesen. Mm-hmm. Most people probably know her from Out of Africa. Yes, this wonderful film mm-hmm. um, where she was played by Meryl Streep. And a wonderful book. Very very, very wonderful book. Yeah, her autobiographical book. Uh, but but the Gothic tales are pure fiction. <laughs> They're wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Now. Um, Scandinavia. I want to. I'm going to make some generalizations about Scandinavia because, um, again, in the North American um, image, uh, there's a, there's a set of images. It's not just um, uh, Stieg Larsson, um, but it is Vikings. It is um, the king of of Sweden who tried to conquer virtually all of Europe. Uh, and did did a very good job in conquering Poland, I might add. <laughs> but uh, and and I, I teach in the Czech Republic, and uh, he ended up at the at the gates of Brno, and 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 uh, was forced to to move on. But so we have different themes. There's the warlike theme, uh, the warlike theme of the Danes, of the of the Vikings. Uh, is an image which, if you begin to read into some of the, um, I guess, more enlightened stories about the uh, about the Danes and the Vikings and the Norse, that there was a great deal more to them than just uh, raids, Vikings, you know, the Vicks. Uh, 
It was um, they brought a culture, and they brought um, a language, and that which they left behind, and a law which they left behind. Well, absolutely, and and I think that one of the one of the first things to realize, and and I didn't realize that until rather late. I have to say, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but there are different kinds of Vikings. Uh, one 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 variety, admittedly. That was the Danish variety, unfortunately, <laughs> sort of a warlike type that would go to England and maraud. And yeah. I am ashamed. Take the horrible. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say that I'm probably descended from those, you know. <laughs> but indeed, they brought the the Dane law, the the law. And you'll, if you look at Danish and English and ancient Norse, they're very related languages. Yes. Very interesting. But then there's another type of Viking, and those were the ones that made it to. Uh, Vineland to uh, North America. Mm-hmm. That is not the conquering kind. And that's something I think that people often don't realize. They were actually exiled from, originally that family was exiled from Norway for manslaughter. And mm. uh, howsoever one feels about manslaughter, you know, a man can be driven to things in defense mm-hmm. of his family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it may be called manslaughter, but they were banished from Norway. They then settled in, in Greenland uh, and from there, they established uh, their residence, so to speak, on <laughs> Greenland. And from there, went on to explore uh, the other parts of the North Atlantic and ended up in Vineland. That was life the happy. We're going to talk some more about uh, about Greenland and the and the uh, and the Danes and the Norse and the Swedes just a minute, but and also uh, about your book. But we're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Anne Fortier, who is the author of Juliet a New York Times bestseller. Now, I will say that I don't take that as automatic recommendation, but it's good to have that. Uh, We'll be right back. We're now back with Anne Fortier, the author of Juliet, uh, which is something completely different than what we've been talking about, which is Scandinavia and Eric the Red and Leif Erikson and Vineland, Vinland. And uh, I, I was telling uh, her beforehand, a friend of mine is um, a, uh, a Greenlander, a genuine Greenlander. He is part Danish and part uh, Eskimo and uh, speaks about 12 or 13 languages. He's a brilliant uh, academic and uh, politician. He used to be a priest, and now he's a politician in uh, the European Parliament. And, um, but at any rate, uh, we're talking about the contribution of the Danes. Now, you're a Dane, and you've made it, you have made it across the, the pond, as we say. I have. Okay. I have. But before you came across to uh, North America, um, following in the footsteps of Leif Erikson, uh, <laughs> you you were raised in the west coast of, of Norway. And what was your family like? Very small family, actually. Um, uh, was um, I think my family always felt slightly exiled because they, we were originally from the southern parts of Denmark. And my grandfather, who was an orthopedic surgeon, uh, 
was given this new hospital that was being built on the West Coast. And so my family went there. My mother lived there um, all, all her life, is, still lives there. I'm an only child, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and my family's very, very small. Um, and I think that that perhaps is one of the reasons why I started writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I think about my childhood, it was very, very quiet, apart from uh, the sound of the west wind with the mm. salty, you know, salty spray against the windows. The <laughs> I mean, you can just imagine, right? I'm standing on the parapet of Cronenberg Castle and, yes. and waiting for the ghost. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I'm listening to you. Go ahead. Exactly. I mean, it's dark out there. On the mm-hmm. coast, on the west coast, with the North Sea beating up on 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 the you know eating eating about a foot of the coast every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so 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 I grew up there, very quiet, very small family, uh, not a lot of friends. Uh, and I would be the the girl who would never go out. You know how girls go out at night. You mm-hmm. know when they reach a certain age. Mm-hmm. Well, I never went out, and and I never had boyfriends either. Mm. I just invented them on my grandfather's old <laughs> typewriter, and they were so wonderful. They were, they were so chevalier yeah, and wonderful. Yeah. Much better than the, the, know, the reality. doofuses <laughs> out there. <laughs> I'm sure I'm, some of our audience may actually be in the west coast of Denmark, and you take no personal affront at what she has just said about the, being doofuses. Oh, they know I love it. They know I'm <laughs> saying this out of love. Okay. <laughs> So uh, just you, and you sat with your typewriter and created a world, many worlds, I assume, of your own. Many, many, many worlds. And they all, while I was still using my grandfather's old typewriter, on which he wrote his disputation when he became a doctor, Mm. it it didn't have all the new vowels. You know, the Danish alphabet Mm -hmm. has been expanded with new vowels Mm. in recent memory, and it didn't have them. So you have to be be a little creative. (laughs) And it also, it was so hard that it, it sort of knocked the O's into holes. So the little hole, I'd have all these little spots lying around in my lap when I was done. It was all the O's that had fallen out. You could hold up the sheet and look and see light shining through the sheet, through the little holes. So that was my, my start as, as a writer. And then I, I upgraded to my mother's old typewriter. And then I got my own typewriter. Oh. My own typewriter. And, uh, and that was amazing. And then later on, my mother tried to to interest me in the computer. Mm-hmm. She said, you're really going to need this new newfangled thing. And I said, mom, I don't think so. It's not worthwhile because it's just some... some it's a passing fad. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's just sort of a phenomenon. It'll be outdated next <laughs> next year. <laughs> my brother. Oh, yeah. My brother, who is a lawyer, okay, yeah. an intelligent fellow, all throughout my adult life has peppered me with that. For example, really? he said, why do you have... <laughs> Uh, why do you have a voice recorder on your phone? And I said, well, because my wife has a, you know, has a business and I have, you know, I'm a public official and we take messages. He said, everybody has told me that they will never, that will never last. It's a passing fad. That's too funny. We then went to cell phones, passing fad, passing fad. Internet, internet's going to go. There is, it's silly. It's no, it's, it's useless. No one pays any attention to it. And I'm sitting here. Do you want to know who has a voice recorder on his phone, who has several cell phones, and who can't get off of the Internet? It's not me. It's my brother. But you are too kind to ever put that in his face. I would you? never put that. Well, no, actually, I do put it in his face periodically. <laughs> but go ahead. So you ended up 
Did you ever become fluent with computer? I, I, I do confess uh, that I did start with computer. I'm still what apparently we're we are called an IT bimbo. That's what I am. I'm an <laughs> IT bimbo. And I proudly confess that I I'm just just able to to attach a photograph of my little daughter to an email simply because I know it's going to make the grandparents happy. But that's about all I can do. That's and press brilliant. print, and I just hope, <laughs> I just hope and pray that something will come out of the machine that's attached uh, to the computer. <laughs> there, there is also another button called send. Ooh. Maybe you didn't get that. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no wonder your parents have not heard from you very exactly, often. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. No, we always talk on the phone. Yeah, I, yeah we do. Yeah. Now, um, living, you, you grew up alone. Um, you, but you had a good relationship with your parents and especially with your mom yes. who gave you an exposition to a world. Absolutely. My mother was still, I mean, she was a teacher of languages and her love of languages was something that created a, the atmosphere in which I grew up. Her particular love of the English language, I think, was was a great benefit for me. She would, you know how how parents try so desperately to make their children go to sleep at night and tiptoe around. Well, my mother would come in on a Tuesday night, school night, Tuesday night at oh. 11 o'clock at night and pick me out of bed wrapped in my duvet and, and say, I just want you to come and see this and hear this. Mm. And so she'd take me into the living room, sit me down in front of the television, the old black and white on the little brass mm -hmm. wheels, and say, you have to listen to this. And it would be James Mason, an old film, old black and white film with James Mason or Sir Laurence Olivier or mm -hmm. Leslie Howard. And she said, this is the most beautiful English you will ever hear. Mm -hmm. And in a few years, you will never hear it again. Ooh. And I sat there and I saw these old films, The Scarlet Pimpernel, oh, and yeah. all those old films. And I just absorbed this love of the English language. I was in Istanbul uh, a few years ago and stayed at a small hotel near the Blue Mosque. And I remember uh, we had a group of people uh, from a family, uh, mom and dad and two children, two sons. One of the sons was 17, 16. Um, the family were originally from Bosnia and had escaped from, Sarah, I think, Sarajevo, the, the massacres down there. And um, they were professional people in, in Bosnia, but uh, were driven to, um, to Norway. And they had lived in Oslo for 15 years or so. Well... Each of the parents had fluency in English, so we could carry on conversations, but it was nothing like their 16-year-old son. He spoke English with flat American Midwestern <laughs> accent that you could not. I, I mean, I listen to language. I listen to accents. I love them. I love the differences in people's speech and what, what it means. I could not detect any, <clears throat> any accent whatsoever other than uh, American. So I, I said to him finally, I said, where did you learn English? And he said, American cartoons. Wow. I watched them 
all, every day I watched American cartoons, and that's where I learned my English. Wow. Now, you learned <laughs> it from a much higher level, <laughs> and you're more brilliant, obviously. Oh, but, I mean, the thing is, if you grow up in a small language, and, and I think it's probably hard for, for anyone growing up with English to imagine what it's like to grow up with a language that nobody understands, mm-hmm. except just those that little group of five million people surrounding you that really is a very tiny group it doesn't even it's not even the the people living in manhattan Mm -hmm. it's the half half the people living Mm -hmm. in manhattan or Mm -hmm. at least you know in the great new york area just speaks that language so if you want to do anything you want to go anywhere with yourself in the world and be understood you're going to have to learn another language i'm sorry right. but you are because nobody's going to understand you that's right so you start you you know you're going to learn english and of course you're also surrounded by uh, american media but also english it's it's a mix really mm-hmm. um, um and um and uh, and of course because it's such a small language group we don't dub the films and if if i may just send out one of those things that's close to my heart stop Dubbing the films. Mm-hmm. L- allow the youngsters to see these films with the original speech. Which, if it's a French film, see it in French mm-hmm. with the subtitles. That's the way you learn a language. Mm-hmm. You don't learn it because some school <laughs> momish person is mm-hmm. swinging a, a whip over your head. You learn it because you want to, because that's the only way you're going to understand this film. And I'll tell you, my mother, my mother, whenever we saw a film in English, had a great hatred of subtitles. Mm-hmm. Um, because she felt they ruined the film. Mm-hmm. So she would take, she had a particular chair that was just high enough with a dish towel draped over it <laughs> to cover the subtitles. <laughs> and so whenever there was a film on, and this is from I was very young, we would see the film in the original English, but mm-hmm. no subtitles. So if I wanted to understand anything, I would have to learn. So just to give you an it, idea, you know. Well, you know, I, I'm studying Czech, and yes. I... I um, because I teach in the Czech Republic, and I figured it was it was rude not to try at least to learn the language of the country that I'm teaching in. Um, the questions that many Czechs to this day ask me: Why are you doing this? We, there's only eight million or nine million of us. Why? Are, why are you learning? We're learning English. Um, and the reason, I, I, when I tell them, they just look at me with this blank stare. Why, you know, you want to be courteous? That's fine, but this is craziness. But I think you learn about the people from their language. And if you want to understand the Danes, you should at least see it in context. And, and the same thing applies to English. If there is a difference between English English and American English, and even within the United States, and, and within Britain, there's this diversity of language, and language produces class differences in England more so than here, but we have a bit of that as well, but not nearly so much as they have there. But then you learn. You, 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 you get that. You know that when Sir John Gielgud speaks, you're, it's better. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's, it's true. so good. It's you're so right. good. We're going to take another short break. We're talking to Anne Fortier, the author of Juliet. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that book, where it came from, what it's about, and we're going to give the plot away. We're going to right down to the end. (laughs) We'll be right back.
We're now back with Anne Fortier, who is the author of Juliet, a Dane who speaks beautiful English, magnificent English from John, Sir John Gielgud and and Alec Guinness and, uh, and James Mason and so on. Um, before we we broke, we were talking about the importance of language and as a key to culture. But there's other keys to culture, which I, I now want to lead into uh, how you got to write this book. Because it's, it is, for me, it was a very interesting entree into the culture of, of a different country to it, Italy. And, eh, Perel, to, to, tied into English. Where, where did this book come from? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it definitely came from a, a love, a lifelong love of Italy. Not just on my behalf, but my mother's. Mm-hmm. My mother actually lived in Verona when she was younger and worked mm-hmm. there. And so when I was growing up, we'd usually go to Verona. We'd have to go back and visit friends and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So I grew up with almost with a relationship with Juliet, with Shakespeare's Juliet. Because when you're in Verona, you'll see that there is a... Well, they so of course it's all fiction, but they've mm-hmm. they found this. They've dedicated this balcony to her, call it Juliet's balcony, and there's a statue of Juliet there. So you have to go and visit it when you're there. And we did every time we'd go to Verona, we'd have to go and say hello to Juliet. So this this um, this relationship with with the character Juliet was one that I had from very very young. While of course. Romeo was more of a dubious character because he was the one who eventually caused her death and misery. Isn't it that? Isn't that the way with men? It I mean, is, come on. It is, and and quite frankly, John, sometimes mm. it's the other way around too. <gasps> oh, I'm sorry to say oh, so, but oh, you know, it's all true. right. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's where it came up. So you can imagine our shock and 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 even a sense of guilt toward that Juliet we'd known for so long, when my mother discovered that, in fact, the earliest version of this famous story of Romeo and Juliet was set in Siena, in Tuscany. It wasn't set in Verona. Mm-hmm. In, fair, in Verona's fair city, uh, how does yeah, that go? Yeah, yeah. Uh, where we, in where fair we set Verona, our, where fair we, Verona, we set our scene. play. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Now it's also in fair Siena where we set <laughs> our play, um, because Shakespeare didn't invent this story. He, he didn't, in fact, invent very much. He just s- sort of swung his magic wand over it. In, and he is a genius, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so, so there's no, no, no question that, that it was his touch that made this story immortal. But the story had a long history before it arrived on Shakespeare's desk. It was originally written in 1476. That's more than a century before Shakespeare's play by an Italian author who, as I said, said it in Siena. Then the story traveled through different hands. The, the characters changed their names. The balcony scene was added. Um, the, the modes of the suicide ch- changes. And, and it's moved to Verona. Mm-hmm. And that was, those were the rudiments of the story when Shakespeare got it. So, uh, so I thought, this is amazing. Uh, I, I would like to write, I would like to take that famous story back where it all started, back to the origins of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And you did by going to uh, Siena a lot? Absolutely. Well, I, I was not able, I was hard at work over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working to produce a documentary film at the time. Mm-hmm. But my mother 
was able to spend a lot of time in, in Siena and helped me so much with the research. She was doing her own research at the time. She was going in the footsteps of a Danish journalist who had essentially, uh, his name was Johannes Janssen, who had in the early 20th century, he's been known as sort of a rebellious uh, character and then uh, for his own reasons converted to Catholicism left his family who couldn't take that, that, just could not stand that left everybody he knew because they wouldn't have anything to do with him because he'd converted to Catholicism and went to live in Italy Mm -hmm. uh, and started writing biographies of the saints and he wrote a fantastic biography of St. Catherine of Siena, who in, in fact is one of, of the, the uh, guardian saints of, or patron saints of Europe. Um, and, and my mother was sort of walking in his footsteps. I think at that time, my, you know, my mother was alone and she was trying to find herself at that time. She'd f- stopped working and so on and, and, uh, and found some solace, I think, in Johannes Jansen's um, quest Mm-hmm. for enlightenment and clarity. And uh, and so she was doing her own research in Siena at the time and was very, very sweet to include research for Juliet in my... And that is why you'll find that St. Catherine plays a part in the story, Does? Juliet. Yes. Because what my mother discovered and yes, it was too interesting to not include it in the book. And you'll see in the book um, the themes of, of course, the bubonic plague and the Siena underground, all the mysterious caves underground. And I won't give away, I won't give away how that plays into the book. But those are things my mother found, which I didn't, which you have to spend some time in Siena to find these things, Mm -hmm. these mysteries, because the Sienese are very private people. And um, and they won't tell you these things until they feel you've become a Sienese. And I can't tell you that there's a re- I don't know what the recipe would be to become a Sienese, but it's such an amazing feeling when your friends in Siena say, you're a true Sienese now. Ooh. <laughs> so you, you have to get underneath the surface to, to, to find the hidden Siena. And that, I hope, is what I've managed to get into the book, this hidden Siena. And, um, and, and I will quickly say that for those who are fortunate enough to be able to go to Tuscany, um, make sure to go to Siena and don't just do one of those one day trips. The bus come down, it comes mm-hmm. down from Florence and you walk around Siena and you walk back. Take, you know, take some time, spend a few nights in Siena and go, na- go out uh, in Siena at midnight, go into the Piazza del Campo and sit there in the midnight hour and look at these illuminated buildings and just breathe in that atmosphere that most tourists never see. Isn't that true, though, with so many parts of the world, i.e., that um, even in America where we tend, we're known for being open and gregarious and tell you everything that you don't want to know about us in the first five minutes, but even then, and even here, there is a, there is this subterranean world that is a part of our culture that we just don't want to share until we really trust that other person. That's it. And you know what? This is to say, I'm sure we human beings around the globe are far more similar than we'd like to admit. Mm-hmm. Sadly, a lot of differences between us because of people 
dictating how we should think. And mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the great evils on the planet is that we are far too apt to listen to our brilliant leaders mm-hmm. indoctrinating us with mm-hmm. a way of thinking. Because I think that we human beings, in fact, are very much the same if we're just left alone. Um, so I think that that you're absolutely right about uh, the this, this subterranean, uh, this, these these caverns that we all have, whether it's in our physical environment or within ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as one old pre-Socratic philosopher said, man is a microcosmos. Man himself is a small mm-hmm. universe. Mm-hmm. And I that's one of the things I wanted to get into this book, Juliet, um, is that um, while we have we have a we have our, 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 you know, I don't want to go into sort of a Freudian language, but but Freud certainly had a point about we have the side of us that we present to the world, and then we have yes. this the subconscious world, and um, and 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 to me, um, one of the things that uh, is important in in one's life is to realize that you're going to walk some paths you never imagined walking. Mm-hmm. And that's what Julia is very much about. You're in the present day narrative because there is a present day narrative and and the original story of Roman Juliet as well. Well, let's leave that for just one second. So yes, the, yes, yes. The the timeline yes. and the story flips back and forth between 1340 in Siena and current time in Siena and and in, in the United States. And that flipping back and forth is uh, the key to understanding just what you've described. That is, society, I I look at it this way, people and communities are like artichokes. In that, in that, as you look at an artichoke, you see, well, that's an artichoke. I, I understand it. And then you start taking off the leaves and you say, well, wait a minute. Now, there's something more inside. And you keep peeling it away and finally, you get down to the heart of the artichoke, which is the best tasting. What I find about communities is, and groups of people um, is the same thing. Um, you, I used to think, well, I understand the society of St. Joseph. And then I would, oh, wait, there's more. Oh, I, I, oh, this person's related to that person. Oh, oh, no wonder they act this way. And you finally, after... Four generations, <laughs> you are, you may get to the bottom or the core, but it's all changed by that time. Same thing with people, individuals. If you you and I can know each other uh, for thirty years, and as we go along through that those thirty years, I'm going to find more and more about you, and likewise. Or you may choose not to show me a large part of your uh, your inner self, and that's the process of friendship. And in this book, um, we have three fascinating families, and they interact with each other. Were these families? They are the Salambenis, uh, the Ptolemies, and the Mariscottis. Were they real? They were indeed. These families really lived in Siena, and there really was a very bloody feud back in starting in the 13th century, and going all the way into the 14th century. Uh, this is between the Ptolemies and the Salambenis. All manner of attempts at peace were made, never really succeeded until, very tragically, in 1348, uh, the bubonic plague um, simply erased uh, 
fifty percent, a half of Europe's population. Mm-hmm. You have to. It's it's almost inconceivable mm-hmm. how the world changed that year. You know, when you and I look at at the timeline of history, we, you just gloss over the fact that the world changed to beyond recognition mm-hmm. that year. Mm-hmm. When everybody in the family, imagine half your family dying. Just mm-hmm. imagine. In in many places, it was everyone, whole villages dying. It it would have felt as if it was the end of the world. It's uh, hard to imagine, and and so uh, so um, so that's when that finally put a stop to the old. Did feud. it really? Did it did it, it did it actually stop at that point? It did. It did. They they uh, afterwards they they started feuding with other families. <laughs> <because Yes. laughs> you have to feud with someone, right? But there, now you, you've mentioned something uh, earlier in our discussion, and that was the role of Saint Catherine. Of and you talk in your book, there is a sizable portion of this book. Uh, deals with the interplay of religion and culture with your story. How did you come to that? How did you react when you came to Siena? And because I don't think that Denmark has the same um, uh, visible um, relationship between religion and its society as you might find in, in, in some of the southern European countries. What was well, as you probably know... Um, after the the Reformation and the whole Lutheran um, breakaway from the Catholic Church, um, the, the the northern part of Europe became extremely extremely um, severe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very severe religion that you're not allowed much decoration. You know everything. All they they threw they killed. It was terrible. They killed the nuns. They killed the monks. They just swept through. They put pla- white plaster on all the beautiful old frescoes in the churches and so on. And they they complete. It was a complete revolution. I don't think people often realize how violent that was. How violent the wars of, of of religion have been in Europe over the years. It's terrible. And and that's when, you know, a lot of people came to, to the New World to escape mm-hmm. all this, you mm-hmm, know, and, mm-hmm. and hooray for that. But growing up in this Protestant, very sort of Calvinistic environment, you learn you learn to hide your religious instincts in mm-hmm. a way. Uh, it's a private thing between mm-hmm. you and God, mm-hmm. right? And so that's how I grew up, and my mother very much. But I know that my mother has always been looking for an expression of her religion that she did not, that, that was not satisfied by this, this this way you grow up in Denmark. So she started uh, looking for it in Italy. And I think that's why she was fascinated by a Danish a journalist who converted to Catholicism mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. went there and so on. And I think both of both she and I always were pained by by this this gap between Protestantism and Catholicism. That Protestants treat Catholics or, or a Catholic church as if they are trap doors in the floor that mm-hmm. are gonna, you know, fall in and you're gonna just disappear, <laughs> you know. And and I don't know why, but it, but it's it's so ingrained in our culture. And I, I, I find it very sad because we're all the same. It's just a matter of how much do you express your religion? And what I find so wonderful about being in Italy is that people are not afraid of expressing their religion. Mm-hmm. Their love of of the beauty of the world, mm-hmm. which is the, the joy of life. The, the fact that you can go into a confessional and say, I did this, I feel so bad about it, and be told, you're forgiven, go away. Mm-hmm. 
and have a good meal mm-hmm. and have mm-hmm. a glass of wine. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things that's so wonderful. You don't have to carry this burden around until you die. Yeah. Um, so, so my mother was looking for this, and and this is something that that is very much has always been percolating at the back of my mind, um, and that's part of what what inevitably has to end up in a book set in Italy, past and present. Very profound thinking, because um, it is it is true that that we when we don't want to talk about certain deep things inside of us, whether it has to do with things we've done wrong or just thoughts we've had, positive thoughts. When we hold it inside of us and they never get expressed, it's not healthy. Or if it is, if you you overcome that, um, you don't give others the benefit of that thinking. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Anne Fortier, who is the author of Juliet, and a remarkable book, remarkable person. We'll be right back. back with Anne Fortier, author of the New York Times bestseller, Fortier, not Fortier, Juliet. Now, when I was reading this book, I didn't know what to expect. I have read an awful lot of books in this role, but also in my life, I, I read a lot. And I have found that there are extremes in the ability of male writers and female writers to express um, uh, the world of the other. So women, some women, who writers who talk, try to create male figures, they're artificial. And a male looks at it and says, what are you talking about? What is this crap? <laughs> and vice versa. And, but I found some very interesting things about the way you, uh, you structured your characters. It was much more textured than I would um, uh, have expected uh, in, a, in a book by a woman author. Very textured description of uh, and uh, a creation of, of the male characters, um, as well as, obviously, the female characters. So uh, my hat's off to you on that. Thank my hat's you. off to you on that. One of the things I was struck, I, had to, I have to mention this. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was reading along and thinking, well, this is good historical thr- drama and whatnot. And I got to um, your main character from the, 25th, the 21st century is Juliet, or Julie. And she has a twin sister, Janice. And there's immediately a fight between the two of them. <laughs> and it's, and a, about the first, I don't know, 50 pages are about this tension between. And I thought, uh-oh, this is going to be a, this is a chick lit book. I'm sorry. But the other, the one line that I, th- one part of it, someone gave, an, a, a fine woman from one of the other families gave to your heroine some clothes. And she was so excited, but especially about the shoes. <laughs> and I thought, that's it. <laughs> and I thought, what is the rest of this book is going to be? If I'm, you know, is this a romance? Actually, though, it was. It did fit in, and it was well written, 
and the, the plot and the historical um, context that you write about, really, really interesting. I love, you know, it brought, it brought that world alive to me in a way that I choose, maybe I've chosen uh, not to understand because I have not read a great deal of Italian literature and I've only been to Rome uh, on a couple of occasions, so I don't. I, I certainly don't consider myself an expert on, on Italian culture, but I liked it. I liked your description. I like your characters. They, your characters were were real. They're enjoyable. Um, when there was tension, I thought, "Ooh, I've had that tension." <laughs> <laughs> but you're a, you're a an only child. Where did you? And you didn't date. Where did you get all this ability? I have big ears. <laughs> no, it's true. I, yeah. I, I have always been a good listener, I think. And I always absorb the world. And I, I just harvest people's voices and people's way of expressing themselves. So it's all out there. And and the the story about the sisters, the, the twins, the good twin and the evil twin. Yes, and right. I'm, I'm doing, right now I'm doing quotation marks in the air here. Yes, the I know. The twin and the evil twin. Right. Because... Um, that could very well be me and an old friend I had. Mm. She's a, uh, the sister is, is a composite, mm. but but maybe she's also me. And maybe uh, it would behoove us well to think about how we ourselves can be our own evil twin mm-hmm. uh, in life. And um, <clears throat> one of the things, it's, 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 a, it's a theme in, his, in Siena history, twinship. Mirrored persons, the black, the white, the parallels, the, uh, the 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 flipping back and forth, I, 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 and I don't mean this to sound like some sort of vampire story where you know midnight strikes and suddenly he grows <laughs> long teeth. That's not what I mean. I just mean that we all have moments where we switch into a mode. It's like this hologram. You flip this. You you, you turn the hologram, and this angelic face becomes demonic, and we all are like that sometimes. And and I, I can catch myself sometimes, and I think that was a part of me that I never would like to see again, ever. Yes. That just popped up yes. to the surface. Yes. And that is something about self-mastery that I, I'm working with in the book. And, and I don't want to give things away, but I no, will don't, say don't. <laughs> that maybe at some point our main character does realize that maybe she herself has caused a lot of this. And one of my... One of my uh, one of the things I really wanted to explore in Juliet uh, was the theme of redemption, and I think that this is something that m- does not necessarily mean a lot to young readers. But the older we get, the more we realize, as I was trying to say, that we walk paths we never thought we would. We do things that shock us, where we think, "If I had known that I would do this when I was sixteen, I would." I don't know what I would have done, but now I've I've done it. I have moved on, and and I have gone through a certain process. Uh, and it's called maturity. Yes, it is precisely, mm-hmm. precisely. And and I I think that you'll find that in the present day narrative of Juliet, there is not a character who hasn't who doesn't have a past, mm-hmm. and who doesn't have or hasn't had a moment where he or she has had a choice has had to make a choice. Am I going to continue down that path? Or am I going to go through a process of redemption and 
and and reinvent myself because of course I am reinventing Romeo and Juliet it's a it's a reincarnation if you will of the characters mm -hmm. and so there there has to be reflection along those lines in my opinion in order to to make this an interesting read in your uh, in your book but also in an uh, interview I saw with you uh, with you um, you talked about the happy ending <laughs> and not all books, not all great literature has a happy ending. I can think of some of my favorite books, my, one of my all-time favorites, Dr. Zhivago. Yes. Uh, at the end, it is melancholic. It is reflective, but it certainly isn't a hip-hop happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well... <laughs> It's it's such. Anyway, by the way, I'm, I'm not saying what the ending of this no, book is. I not at all. We're, we're leaving that for the reader to. to, to, to no, it's a it's a great ending, by the way. Go ahead. I'm glad you say so. Uh, it's it's tough, isn't it? You take this tragedy and uh, and, and I. What do you do with it? Yeah, I know. I know. I personally, I I am I'm a sucker for happy endings. Mm -hmm. it's, that's what you know makes me happy. So so what what on earth do you do? But let's just put it this way: um, present day character Julie. Uh, who is sort of a present-day reincarnation of the ancient Juliet. This is her quest. It's the attempt to create a happy ending on this old story, mm -hmm. if possible. If possible. And the only way this is possible for her, the only thing that makes this possible is that she did not live in the Middle Ages when women didn't have the opportunities they do now. And so you live in the present day as a young woman. You have all these choices. The question is, are you going to squander your choices? How are you going to deal with your choices? That's the big problem if you live in, in a lot of, of choices. I myself believe very much that women should have access to all the education they could possibly have and all those things. But sometimes I worry that, uh, that, uh, that we stop thinking when, we, when we're, you know, we get blinded by all these mm -hmm. choices and we stop trying to find what it is that we really want. But but never mind that. Uh, I was What was it I was saying? I, I wanted to say something really deep, and now it's gone. <laughs> but, but you see, that, that very thing is the, is the beauty of life because your life leads you on through a period of time and you're marching towards something, and all of a sudden you realize, excuse me, where was I going? And all of a sudden, at that point, you say, oh, wait a minute, here's a new thought. And you go on from there. And you, it's the blending of your uh, personal experiences with um, your thinking, with whatever we call soul, with whatever we call fate and life. It all it creates different people. <coughs> Pardon me. Creates uh, the, the, um, the now I'm having a difficult time with the <laughs> word, the, the diversity yes. of life, the yes. infinite diversity of life. Now, I must do something which I hate to do, but we're gonna, I'm going to tell you, um, I've got to end. We're, we're at the end of our time, oh, but no. I am, definitely want you back. There's many other things I want to talk about with you, about literature, about European culture and literature, which hopefully we can do uh, at another time. That would be lovely. Good. And Fortier, thank you very much for joining me and all the effort to get to our little studio here in the woods. Uh, we've been talking to Anne Fortier, author of an extremely interesting book called Juliet, the
split vision of uh, the original story of Romeo and Juliet and a modern permutation. (laughs) The name of our program is With Respect. We're on every Sunday morning at 11 and every Thursday morning at 10. Remember, as I say every week, if we show respect to other people, other people will show respect to us. Thank you.